Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. So I, like I'm sure many of you, I love stories. And I spend most of my driving time, and when I can, spend some reading time before I fall asleep at night, but I spend most of my driving time listening to all kinds of stories. I love stories. I love novels and fiction. And one of the most powerful and memorable types of stories are the ones where the plot twist at the end finally explains everything, right? When you realize Snape was Dumbledore's man all along, right? Those are very powerful kinds of stories. Or I think of uh, the, the book version from 1956 of I Am Legend. Not the movie version. I like Will Smith, but they completely screw up the end. The whole point of the book, I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's well worth reading. It's a kind of early uh, vampire zombie apocalypse kind of, that doesn't even make it sound right, but the point is you got to read it. It's a very thoughtful book. And at the very end, you realize that... Um, the man, the main character who thinks he is the righteous one and everybody else is monsters, it turns out they see him as the monster. It's just this amazing twist. Well, the only more powerful kind of story than that kind of plot twist story would be one where the plot twist turns on you. And maybe if you're like me, maybe you were converted a little later age, I was 18, I kind of had that happen in the sense that I kind of was able to see my life differently, at least up to age 18. Once I became a Christian, I took the blue pill or the red pill or whatever it was and saw the world very differently. Well, whether you know uh, I am legend or not, many of us probably do know the Old Testament story of King David and the prophet Nathan. You remember this story where David, who is a godly, righteous man, leader over all of God's people, he falls into the horrible situation of uh, leading this woman into adultery with him, and then he kills her husband, and he tries to cover it all up, and he's full of guilt and shame, but he won't listen to anybody about it because it's all hidden. And finally, God says, in his grace, God sends a prophet, Nathan. And what does Nathan do? Nathan tells him a story. And it's a story that has a plot twist at the end, and a story where the plot twist ends with these famous words, you are the man. And the plot twist turns, and it's all about David, and he sees it clearly. It's basically what I call an emotional, narrative, theological throat punch, basically is what Nathan delivers there. Well, our story today in the New Testament book of Acts, we're going to see this very same kind of story. In fact, the whole book of Acts is a story, but we have a story within the story that's in our text today. And that story is all built on a last-minute emotional twist of the plot and one that is very, very personal. We're going to meet Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first one to die for the Christian faith and see that he tells a story that is all built on the plot twist. So what I want to do is I want to pause once again and just pray for God to be present with us and then see what he has for us in Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Our kind Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that unless you show up and unless you reveal yourself to us, then we're just lost and we are 
uh, just stuck with our own devices and our own very imperfect wisdom and our own poor choices and our own uh, messy situations, marriage and parenting and family and jobs, health. So please, we'd ask you to come and do a new and deepening work in us today during this brief time together by the power of the Spirit. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our text from today for today is in the book of Acts, chapter 6 and 7. I'd love for you to have, a, if you have a Bible with you on your phone, or there's a pew Bible there if you don't have one with you, I'd love for you to look in the Bible. We'll put some of the verses on the screen, but it's a really, really long, long section. It's two whole chapters. One of the chapters is 56 or so verses long, so it's a lot. We're not going to be able to read all of it, but I'd love you to have a Bible with you. If you're here visiting today and you do not have a Bible Take that one that's the Pew Bible. That is our gift to you. Very welcome. I asked the other pastors first, make sure that was fine. And, but if you're a seminary student who just wants another Bible, no, you can't have it. But if you're here and you don't have a Bible, take that Bible with you. But either way, if you would have and turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, the fifth book of the New Testament, it's a very long passage, like I said. And so I'm only going to be able to give you kind of a Google Earth, high altitude view of what's going on in these two chapters. Then I'll point out a few landmarks, and then we'll try to land it by asking, what is God saying to you and me today from this? So at this point in our preaching through the book of Acts, we are in chapter six. So there've been five chapters that have happened before. And I would describe those five chapters as basically an explosion. They're an explosion of the story of early, the early Christian church. And that explosion is, first of all, the explosion of life. You know, like those time-lapse pictures where you see like a flower that's in a bud and then you see it sort of sped up and it grows and explodes into this flower of color and shape. That's kind of like the book of Acts. It's like this explosion of life. People from every race and culture and background and physical appearance and age and religion are all of a sudden experiencing incredible explosive life, new life and freedom and joy. And it's just the gospel's just exploding out into people's lives and changing everything in a sudden and dramatic way of joy and freedom. And those first five chapters, though, are not only about an explosion of life, they're also an explosion of the opposite kind, an explosion of destroying traditions and barriers and customs of race and culture and religion and expectations and cherished values, especially those of the Jewish leadership. So you have this kind of five chapters of this double explosion, life and destruction of old habits and customs. And that's what you see then as the context of what happens in chapters six and seven, our text for today. That double explosion of growth and tearing down. The first one, the explosion of growth. If you have a Bible, again, you can look there in chapter six. What happens when you have an explosion of growth in life? Sooner or later, and usually sooner, there are going to be problems with that growth, right? And lo and behold, who would have thunk it? Christians, even Christians, sometimes can't get along with each other and have conflict with each other. If you look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so this growth is happening, the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Jewish people who were now part of the church, who have a Greek background, Greek language, Greek customs, among them, they complained against the Hebraic Jews, the ones who were from Palestine and, and Israel, because their widows, the Hellenistic widows, Jews, w- widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the church is, is providing for those in need within their numbers. And all of a sudden, there's this, it's becoming clear that some people 
surprise, surprise, are preferencing those who are more like them culturally and linguistically than the people who are not like them, even within the church. So it's a problem and there's tension. So verse two says, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, What's happening here is they realize with all this growth, what we need are some godly, respectable leaders that people will look to and who will deal with the situation in a fair way. They'll take in the money and the goods that are given and they'll distribute in a way that is not prejudiced and not biased based on personal preference. And so they need leaders. But the problem is that there's so much need And that was such a pressing need and that God had called the original disciples, Jesus' original 12, now they're 11 and then they added one to their number. He's called them to preach and teach and explain what the gospel is about. And so they can't do everything. And so the church's solution is a very good one, one that we still use today, which is a division of labor. I can change the oil in my car, but I don't always have time to do that. So why not have a division of labor and pay someone to do that, right? Or whatever it is for you. The musicians, some are skilled and gifted. If you're not skilled and gifted, probably shouldn't be up here. But in this case, if you're skilled and gifted, not everyone who could be a musician is and is up here. But these people labor in a certain way to help out the whole body. Somebody, I'm sure, within the last week or so, touched every nursery toy with a Lysol wipe and cleaned it. Somebody needs to do that. Somebody needs to make the coffee. All of those things are valuable. And so too here, right in the early days of the church, we see the first appointing of deacons, godly men and women to lead and provide in a certain way. And this is what happens in this first part. So it's explosion of life and it results in some problems, but they handle it with a lot of wisdom. But the other kind of explosion is right here in chapter 6 as well. For example, look at chapter 6, verse 7, and we see that because of the explosion of life, a lot of people are being converted, even, it says in verse 7, some of the people from the priesthood in Jerusalem. And this makes the other Jewish leadership very upset and angry and mad. So even some of the priests are being converted to this new teaching of Jesus. It'd be like if all of a sudden a number of people of our church started saying, I don't know about Christianity anymore. I'm going to attend the mosque. And then some of the pastoral staff begin to as well. Well, a lot of us would be upset and we'd look into this and we want to figure out what's going on. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so they try to interact with the Christians and they find that even people like Stephen and the other deacons there are very powerfully filled with the spirit and they cannot refute any of their arguments. And so... They decide then, as, as bullies always do, when they're outsmarted in the honest way, they go the underhanded way, lying and instigating, you can see there in chapter 6, verse 11, making false accusations against these newly appointed powerful deacons, including our man Stephen. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. It says, they produce false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So they, they drag him up on these, these false accusations. They put him before the Sanhedrin, which is basically the Jewish court of the day. And they ask him in chapter 7, verse 1, a simple yes or no question, are these charges true of you? And then he gives what is most the longest answer to a simple yes and no question. I'm sure 25, 40, 53 verses into it, they're saying, all we asked you, are these charges true of you or not? But he, he gives a 53 verse answer to their question. 
Is it true what we just said in verses 13 and 14? Is that true of you and of Jesus? Is he going to do these things? Well, the reason Stephen gives such a long answer is because it's complicated. Those accusations against early Christianity, are those true or not? In one sense, no. The answer would be no in the sense that Jesus is not, as the Jewish leaders thought, just a rabble rouser and a destroyer and a revolutionary who's just trying to mess things up, who doesn't care about God, doesn't care about Moses or the law. In fact, do you remember what Jesus explicitly said on this issue way back at the beginning of the first gospel in Matthew five seventeen? He said, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He's come to what? Fulfill them. So it would be a misunderstanding to, to read these accusations and say Christianity is just rabble-rousing. But on the other hand, the accusations are partly true. And this is why Stephen can't give a simple answer, because it is true that Jesus does have a lot of negative th- things to say about this place, and especially, that is, Jerusalem and the Jewish leadership. Not because God is anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic, but because God's leaders, the Jewish leadership, had corrupted what God's teaching was and also weren't shepherding his people well. So In a lot of ways, Jesus is threatening destruction, just like any other Old Testament prophet would have. And we know that Jesus is also bringing something very new. He is coming to fulfill and complete and consummate all that God was doing. So there's a very real sense in which those accusations are true, if you understand understand them properly. And this is where Stephen's long-winded answer comes in. And again, it's very long. We don't have time to, to read this, all 53 verses of it. I'd encourage you on your own. It doesn't take you that long to maybe this afternoon read through it. Maybe in your community group, if you're involved in the community group tonight, you could read through this. But basically what he does in this chapter 7 is that he retells the entire history of Israel in a selective way. And as he does so, you can glance through, he increasingly highlights one particular theme. He first starts by covering the period of the patriarchs, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and down into Egypt. Then he spends some time talking about Moses and the law. And then in the third part of his long-winded message, he talks about the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the building of the temple up through King David. And it all sounds very good at first. It sounds like a good, normal story of Israel that all the Jewish people would have said, yes, 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 right? But then as he continues to tell it, he begins to weave in the message that all along God's people have been rebellious and have refused to listen to him. And then comes the plot twist. At the very end of the sermon, in a Nathan the prophet kind of way, he turns and look at verse seven, verse, chapter 7, verse 51. He says then to them, after all this story of Israel, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, which is quite a thing to say to a Jewish person, right? Your hearts and ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, that is Jesus. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. That's the you are the man moment. It'd be like if we were at a 4th of July celebration with all the fireworks and watermelon, all the things, and someone stood up with a megaphone and started to tell the history of our nation. We're like, yes, yes, love it. And then they started to weave in 
all the history of racial prejudice and slavery and warmongering. And then finally ended it by saying, and you are just like the KKK donning your masks in the injustice on the society. None of us would be too thrilled at that moment, especially because it's true. And nor were they. And so if you look in chapter 7, verses 54 through 60, you can see their reaction, which is enraged. And we see in those verses then that we actually have more going on than meets the eye. There are actually two trials going on. Stephen is being tried by the Jewish Sanhedrin, but the heavens are opened and we see there's actually a bigger trial going on. Do you see that reference to Jesus standing at the right hand of God? That's an image of him as an advocate, as a lawyer, as a counselor, standing there on behalf of Stephen. So while he's being tried on this earth, the reality is that humanity and those opposed to Jesus are being tried with Jesus as the lawyer standing on behalf of Stephen. But there's a great travesty of justice that's done. And our brother Stephen, full of grace and power and peace and even joy in that moment, becomes the first Christian to die for the faith, the first martyr, as they take up stones to stone him. Now, that's Stephen's story. The question is, why is this here in the Bible? And what in the world does that have to do with you and me today? I mean, is this story here in the Bible just because it's giving us the history of the early church? Yes. Is this story here so that we can remember and honor the first Christian martyr, the first witness to die for the faith, and think of others who are dying that way today? Even so, yes, it's here for that. Is this story here so that Luke can set up the rest of the book. Did you notice back in 654 and following that we meet a new character, a young man who's just a passive character at this point, who's standing there and is the coat attendant. They put their coats at his feet while they stone Stephen, the guy Saul, who we're going to meet in the next chapter, becomes the main character of the whole rest of the book. Is this just just here for that literary sort of connection? Well, yes. But I think it's also here for another reason. And the question I'm asking us is, what does God want to say to you and me through Stephen's story today? And I think I can answer it in a simple way. And that is this, that Stephen's story is actually our story, your story, my story. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean by that two things. First, that being a Christian means following in the life steps of Jesus. Being a Christian, like Stephen was, means that you follow in an imitating way of the life and the life steps of Jesus. Have you ever considered that? How that throughout the New Testament, all the characters' lives end up in some way modeling Jesus' life? You think of John the Baptist way back at the beginning of the Gospels, where their lives are in parallel with each other. They both preach the exact same message. John is the forerunner. They end up being imprisoned wrongly and killed by the rulers of the day. Or think of Jesus' own disciples during the Gospels. They are, Jesus goes and preaches and heals and calls people to follow. He commissions his disciples to do the exact same thing while he's still with them and then after his resurrection as well. Paul says this explicitly, doesn't he? imitate me, he says to Christians, as I imitate Christ. To be a Christian is to be one who imitates Christ. And we see it really clearly and beautifully here in Stephen's story. Did you notice that? 
And then you'll have to read the whole story on your own. But Stephen is described in the exact same ways by Luke, the author of Acts, that Luke describes Jesus back in his gospel. Stephen is full of the spirit and of wisdom and of power. He even has a shining face, an angelic appearance. It reminds me of Jesus' transfiguration and resurrection. He's false. Stephen is falsely accused and brought up before this crooked trial. And then especially, did you notice in verses 59 and 60 what Stephen says as he dies? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? If you go back to Luke's account of Jesus' death, his own death, the very first thing he says is, Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then the very last thing Jesus says is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, that's not an accident. This is teaching you and me if you are a Christian, that your life and my life is intentionally mimicking and following in the steps of Jesus. To be a Christian means to be a follower of that way, both, again, intentionally adopting for ourselves Jesus's way of being in the world, his humility, his kindness, his grace towards others, his love, and unintentionally, things that we can't intend, that our lives will sooner or later be marked by the same things that Jesus's life is marked by. Because you see, friends, Christianity is not first and and foremost the believing of a set of doctrines or believing in a set of truths or even believing that Jesus did something or rose from the dead. That's all important. But being a Christian first and foremost is putting your trust in a person, not a set of doctrines, but in an actual person. And as a result of that, our lives will be intentionally again patterned after Jesus and unintentionally things will happen that will pattern our lives after him if we're followers. Do you want to be fully human? Do you want to be fully alive? Then look at Jesus, the New Testament says, because he alone is the second Adam who completes and consummates what it means to be fully and truly human. And what that means is a paradox. Because Jesus' life is marked both by the fruit of the Spirit and abundance, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Jesus is the, the example of that above all else. And that we understand from the New Testament by the power of the Spirit is the life of the Christian as well. All the things you and I long for. And at the same time, even as Jesus' life was marked by suffering and even persecution, so too is the Christian's life. Even in a rare country in time like ours currently, where we have a lot of religious freedom, sooner or later, we, and of course, our brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout the world, have experienced the other side of the paradox of Jesus' life, which is ours as well, suffering and persecution. And it's inevitable. Because if we are united with him, if we are following in his footsteps, what was true of him will be true of us. So Christians... Don't be surprised that your life is marked by both the highest of heights and the lowest of lows, by a mashup of mix of joy and pain. And Christians, stop whining about our place in society and culture, worrying that we don't have the influence we once had or that we should have some sort of honor and that our values should be accepted by everybody. Why would our values be accepted by everybody in the world? Why in the world would we think that would be the case? Was that true of Jesus? No. Jesus is, in fact modeling for us being peaceable and loving and kind and humble, quiet people. Yes, standing up at times against injustice for sure, 
but being a beautiful people who build beautiful things and add beauty to the world. That is the power of Jesus' model. The subversiveness of culture by showing up beautifully and powerfully and fully human. Filled with the Spirit. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus in his life steps. That's what other texts in the New Testament say, like 1 Peter 4. Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is what happened to Jesus. It will happen to us. But rejoice. There's the joy insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, that's actually flourishing because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you and I suffer because we're jerks, then we're getting what we deserve. But if we suffer because of righteousness and following Christ, then this is exactly what we should expect because to be a Christian means to follow in the life steps of Jesus. Or as John, Jesus says in John, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So we see in Stephen that he is modeling both intentionally and unintentionally, it's being modeled upon him, Jesus' own life and way of being in the world. And the other way that Stephen's story is our story, and that's, of course, that's true of us all the way down to today, is that being a Christian means that my personal life story and your personal life story is now part of the great story of the world. I said that there are two ways in which Stephen's story is our story. This is the second one, that being a Christian means that my story, the story of my life, the story of your life, is actually now taken up and woven into part of a much bigger story, the story of the world. In fact, one of the most important things to take away from Stephen's speech is the very fact that in that long-winded answer, he provides a rereading of the history of God's work in the world all the way down to the present, all the way down to one epicenter, one point, who is Jesus. And therefore, any people from now on who are united with Jesus means that our story is part of this retold, re-understanding of the entire history of the world. We see in Stephen's speech, all, and all throughout Acts, really, that it's not right, it, that there's a right way to think about what God is doing in the world. And the answer to that, the key to that, is who Jesus is, and that you and I are actors now playing out the story of Jesus in the world. Because you see, friends, the restoring, God's restoring work of the world through Jesus is shown to really be a restoring not just a restoring, but actually a telling of the story of the world in a new way in light of who Jesus is and how he reveals who God is. It's an entire new understanding of the history of the world. And that's what Stephen gives in this, in this story that he tells, this answer. And it results again in life for some and in death for those who are opposed. And what that means for you and me, friends, is that again, the story of my life and the story of your life is, needs to be understood in a more profound way as not just about you and me, but that we are now taken up and put into the true story of the world. You see, Jesus did not just come and die a painful death to atone for sin because you and I have a moral or legal problem with God. That's true. 
But if that's your understanding of the gospel, you have a very, very truncated understanding of the message of the New Testament. That message about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is part of a much, much larger message of the whole Bible, including the New Testament, that God is restoring the world itself. He's restoring humanity to its fullness. He is restoring creation to its right relationship with itself and with God and with others within it. The story of the New Testament is a retelling of the entire story of the world centered on Jesus, not just the story about the need for our forgiveness of sins. It includes that, but it's so much more. And that means that you and I need to intentionally retool and recalibrate and reform and re-socialize who we are at the deepest level because that's why Jesus has come. Stop and ask yourself, what is actually the story of your life? Because there's, there is a story that's energizing all that you do. Do you realize that? Maybe it's the American dream to have plenty of money to retire with an occasional Disney vacation, right? Maybe it's career accolades. Maybe it's that large uh, home where all your grandkids can gather around. Whatever it is, and there might be a ton of great things that can be, there is some story motivating you, friends. Something is motivating everything you do, whether you're aware of it or not. What this text is saying, what the whole New Testament is saying, is that there is a true story of the world that if you are a Christian, is now your story. And any other story you try to energize your life with is ultimately going to be disappointing and and disheartening and not fulfill all your dreams. But if you and I will get a hold of the story of God in the world, it will transform us even as it did Stephen. Now, what that looks like for you, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you you should do this or that or give up this or that. I, it's a matter of wisdom. I, I, always, I love what Aslan says to Lucy when they're walking in the woods and she asks about Edmund and what happened, who had betrayed him. And I love what Aslan says there. That's not your story, Lucy. That's Edmund's story. And God has a plan and a story for each of us that is not identical. Some of us will have very different, we all have very different experiences. There's not one size fits all for what you're supposed to do with your money and time and energy. There's a lot of freedom in that, and there's a lot of wisdom to be gained by seeking the Lord. But what must happen is that you and I must retool our hearts and minds and realize whatever's motivating my story needs to be God's story because that alone will satisfy, and that alone will honor him, and that alone is the life that you're longing for. You see, because Jesus rose from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of God, Our story now is woven into that one. We are partakers with him, united with him, and our future is his future. Many years ago, uh, when one of our sons was 10, I I have tried to take all my kids on a 10-year-old trip just with me to kind of have some connection with them and talk about that kind of crucial age of life. And I remember one of the most memorable of those trips when one of my sons was 10 many years ago was that we went out and stayed on the ranch of some very, very dear friends of ours, the Arnies out in Northwest Oklahoma, literally tumbleweed going by, et cetera. And it was awesome. And you can imagine for this 10 year old 
to get to go on an airplane trip with his dad, you know, and I was doing some speaking, but we stayed on the ranch and, and uh, so we had the airplane rides and it was so exciting and, you know, all the special things we did and, and got out there. And then this family is just the most loving, warm, open-hearted people. And my son had this week of like driving trucks and shooting guns. And, you know, I think they sent home like a deer antler with them. And I mean, it was just like this boy, 10 year old boy heaven. Right. And he just had this great time. And plus they were just the warmest, most loving people, four wheelers and big meals. It was just amazing. Right. And so as the week went on, he was just full of joys, way better than he had even expected it would be. And then as the day came that we were to leave, he was feeling a little sad. And we got on the rental car and said goodbye at the ranch and drove to the airport. He's pretty quiet, right? And then we get take the first plane back and then change airports, take the second plane back. And, and there we get, we arrive back at the Louisville International Airport and we're walking out of the very place that we had just walked in a week earlier when all the excitement was there. And not only had it fulfilled his dreams, it was above and beyond his dreams. And now it was over. And he'd been quiet and he just broke down. It was over. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but basically that was the gist of it. It's over now, all that joy. And in that moment, and I've had plenty of really bad parenting moments, in that moment I could have said a bad parenting moment like, son, don't cry, you have a lot to be thankful for, right? <laughs> Which would not be uncommon for me to say something like that. But by the grace of God in that moment, instead he gave me the wisdom to say to him, son, that what you're feeling there, that brokenness, that sadness that all good things come to an end and, and the disappointment, you weren't made for that. There's a day coming if you are a, one who follows Christ and trusts in him by faith, there is a day coming when your story will not be one of sadness and disappointment and all good things coming to an end, but a life of endless joy, what you are longing for. And what you're experiencing right now shows that you are made for something so much more. Friends, you and I, most of us here will probably not die for our faith like Stephen did, but we see in Stephen that he gets that. And that's what enables him to live well with boldness and humility and to die well because he, the veil has been pulled back and he sees that the story that it seems that this world is telling is not the true story. And that, friends, if you are a Christian today, I want to say to you, find your life anew in the story alone that is the true story of the world and that will satisfy it. And if you're not a Christian God has so much for you that you know you long for, but it will only be found in the true story of God in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.